1: Welcome to Climate One, the conversation about America's energy, economy, and the environment. I'm Greg Dalton. In his 2012 State of the Union address, President Obama said he was, quote, doubling down on clean energy. One of his bets is that solar power, after many false starts and decades of disappointment, is finally ready for prime time. The president directed his administration to allow development of enough large solar plants on public lands to power three million homes, Will that really happen? What would be the environmental impacts? The California desert is home to some of the most promising public lands for solar energy. How do the president's solar aspirations jive with those of Governor Jerry Brown? For the next hour, we'll discuss California sunspots with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco and four expert guests. David Festus, West Coast Vice President of Environmental Defense Fund, an advocacy organization. He served in the Clinton administration as an official at the U.S. Department of Commerce. David Hayes is the Deputy Secretary of Interior, a federal agency that presides over nearly one-fifth of America's land mass, land that produces nearly a third of America's energy production. He served in the same position in the Clinton administration and as a private attorney has represented energy companies. Mike Hatfield is Director of Development at First Solar, a California company that received more than $3 billion in federal loans to build large solar facilities in the American West. He's a veteran of the energy industry. And John Laird is Secretary of the California Resources Agency, which is responsible for protecting and monitoring state lands and waterways. He's a member of Governor Brown's Cabinet and a former member of the California State Assembly. Please welcome them all to Climate One. (laughs) Gentlemen, thanks for coming. Um, David Hayes, let's begin with you. Uh, The president said three million homes, solar-powered on public lands. How is that going to happen?
2: Well, Greg, first, thanks for having us here. It's it's always fun to come to the Commonwealth Club. Um, It's already happening. Uh, That uh, comment from the – in the uh, State of the Union uh, was directed at the Department of the Interior. As you mentioned, uh, we're America's largest landowner. And, uh, a lot of our lands are in the Southwest, which have a incredible, uh, resource, solar resource. And, uh, when we came into office, uh, in the beginning of 2009, uh, there were zero megawatts, uh, coming from our public lands from solar projects. Um, uh, last year, uh, we Tallied up how much how many projects we had permitted in our two uh, two plus years, and it was 6,500 megawatts, and we're headed for 10,000. That's the equivalent of the 300 million homes. We did the math for the White House. 300 I'm
3: sorry,
0: million.
2: Three. three million, <laughs> <laughs> 300 million people, three million homes. But 10,000 megawatts. Just to put that into perspective, a a coal-fired power plant 300. Uh, megawatts so we're talking 30 coal fired power plants the equivalent of 30 coal fired power plants now we are proving up the case that we can have utility scale solar power uh, in this uh, in this country and we're and the public lands are leading the way we're very uh, proud of what we're doing we're doing it in partnership with the state of california as John will talk about uh, and and with the states of nevada and arizona in particular
1: and we'll drill into that, but you said permitting rather permitted rather than actually steel-in-the-ground built. But there's a difference, right?
2: There's a difference, but we are under construction with a number of these uh, large uh, facilities, and uh, our other guests can, can give some examples of that.
1: Well, Mike Hatfield, uh, let's talk – is the money there to do what the president said he wants to be done? Is the financing there? Are you willing to put capital into that?
4: Yes, the money the money is definitely there. We've got um, over fifteen hundred megawatts permitted, of which about a thousand um, is either nearly under construction or financed. About uh, we have about six billion dollars in the pipeline, roughly half of which is um, subject to, or is um, made available by DOE financing. The capital markets are um, thawing, and we're finding investors in the Fortune 500 companies, including uh, Warren Buffett himself, uh, his company. So I think that's uh, an attestation to um, the the capital being there.
1: David Festa is an environmentalist. Uh, How do you view, if all these get built, what would be the environmental impacts of of all this, this grand ambition?
0: So I think the, the potential here is to have a result where the whole ecosystem is actually better off after development than before development. And the key is just to go through three simple steps in terms of uh, the environment. Uh, one is to avoid impacts where possible. The second is to minimize the on-site impacts. Uh, and third is to to create offsetting mitigation for the residual impacts that you can't get rid of. Because the bottom line is, even if you do the perfect job of avoiding and minimizing, you're still going to have impacts left over. So if we just stop with that, we're saying we're okay with um, degrading the environment as long as we do it slower than we would have otherwise. And, of course, that's not what anybody wants. It's the offsetting mitigation that then creates this, Uh, Overall uh, rise in the performance of the environment, and we think that's entirely possible.
1: And we'll get into those, drill into that a little bit later. John Laird, is California on the same page here with this uh, uh, vision for a whole lot of solar? A lot of this would be in California.
5: We're very much on the same page, and uh, (coughs) David Hayes and I were somewhere recently with Secretary Salazar, and I pointed out that it never occurred to me. Uh, when I graduated from college 40 years ago, that one of the key factors was how many of those years during my career would the federal government and the state government be aligned uh, in a way that they could do things together, and we're in that moment right now. And so uh, at the state level, the governor signed the 33 uh, uh, percent renewables portfolio bill to set that as our goal if, if – Uh, everything that is permitted is built will be virtually at that goal. And so the question is, is how do you pull together everything you heard from the other speakers and uh, make sure that uh, we do what we can to permit fairly, we do what we can uh, to mitigate in a way that uh, improves the environment over time, and we set the conditions so that the private investment will come and do that. And so we're at a key moment right now, but uh, the table has really been set well.
1: So before we really dive into this, I want to set a baseline just to give a context of how large solar is in the overall energy. Uh, mix. Uh, it's about I've read a six billion dollar industry, but it's only what one or two percent. It's hard to find a real hard number, partly because there's so much capacity coming online. One or two percent of America's electricity comes from solar, right? So we're talking still a tiny, tiny. You know, Mike Catfield, where do you see that going? If all these projects come online, is that going to, what get to five or ten percent?
4: Yeah, it's going to become a a significant component of our energy supply, but it's never going to supply 100 percent or even anything approaching that. But uh, the important thing is it needs to be part of our overall mix. And what we're seeing now um, from 20, 30 years ago when it was an ascent industry is it's beginning to mature, and it's maturing because costs are coming down. Yeah, and you know, ultimately, it needs to be a business that competes with other sources of supply. Well, one of the things that's going on now:
1: a lot of the federal funds that were uh, flowing around after the stimulus package expired last year uh, is that going to con- is that going to cause the industry to contract? The New York Times did a story recently about wind and power kind of pulling back because the federal funds are ending or or, or slowing down. David Hayes, is that
2: well, a concern? Well, the, the, uh, uh, the on the solar side. Uh, the fact that the costs have come down uh, is now proving up solar as being very, very competitive with other power sources. I think the, the what was missing was a proof of concept that you could actually have a utility scale uh, project. And what Governor Brown and before him Governor Schwarzenegger did is forced the proof of concept to come forward. We were a willing partner. Um, and, uh, and what we're seeing, and Mike can confirm this, is that, uh, while some of the the startup companies are uh, have had some challenges, you're getting big time investors coming in, like Warren Buffett, like Google and others, investing in this because they see solar as a competitive long term uh, power source.
1: Warren Buffett's been on quite a bi- a solar uh, binge
2: lately. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs>
1: Mike oh, Hatfield, do you see the big money coming in, the, the, the replacing, or once the government went in, do you see the sort of big invest smart money, so to speak, coming into solar?
4: Yeah, I think it is It is happening. The, <clears throat> the loan guarantees and the investment tax credits and other benefits help to um, get the industry started. And what we're seeing is um, as there's economies of scale and larger companies like First solar move into this space, we're seeing costs beginning to come down. And as those costs come down, um, there'll be less and less um, dependence upon um, uh, federal incentives. But, uh, yeah, I think we have some traction. Definitely. So you're okay
1: with the federal money going away? Because you, your company got $3 billion. Um you're okay with that spigot being turned off?
4: Well, you know, half of that investment was uh, without DOE loan guarantees, So I think we are seeing in the marketplace um, um, private equity and private uh, debt uh, stick, uh, you know, stepping up uh, for it. But, um, you know, I think the, the investment tax credits and the other um, uh, incentives um, are um, are key you know, to keep the industry going. And in some stage, um, the, the industry is going to have to stand on its own. But that's a conversation that's, uh, that needs to be, um, you know, carefully discussed.
1: Anyone else here? The, um, another change in the marketplace could be the way the federal government changes leasing lands. David Hayes, we talked yeah. a little bit about uh, oil and gas is auctioned, whereas for solar it's it's not that same way. And so I'd like to talk a little bit about – you know, getting the, mo- getting the taxpayers' best deal for, right. for the uh, federal lands.
2: That's a, it's an important point. Uh, and actually what we've seen is uh, for the first uh, period here in the Obama administration, we've been targeting specific projects working with the conservation community that look like they were good projects and that we could move through. And then we have brought the permitting entities together to help this go smoothly Uh, With some falling by the wayside, the emphasis here is that we've been we've been working on good projects uh, that 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 meet the environmental requirements we're all looking for. But we want looking ahead, we don't want to be going project by project. We want a landscape level planning approach, and we're in the midst of and nearing the finish line actually on a major uh, six statewide effort to develop solar energy zones on our public lands, uh, in consultation with industry and conservation groups, trying to identify areas that make the most sense for the future for these large projects. They're going to be near transmission. They're going to be often in disturbed lands. Uh, They're going to have a relatively few conflicts. They're going to be mitigable, uh, per David's point. Um, And the, the expectation for the future is they, that will provide a clear path for industry to go to these solar zones while also providing, uh, meeting our conservation needs, which are incredibly important to our president and to our governor. Um, and, and so that's the future. And within those solar zones, we just put out a proposal to, to start auctioning that land. And not, right now we have a first come, first serve. You pay a rent and you pay a royalty based on how much electricity you provide so that it, we believe it's fair value. But it would be better like we do for oil and gas, to provide everyone with an opportunity to uh, bid, basically, for what we believe will be a real opportunity to develop uh, in the right place on our public lands.
1: Sounds like monopoly. You land on the utility. You own it. You can (laughs) buy it, right? Uh, You're there first, right? David Festa, are you satisfied with that process that's sort of saying, okay, some zones are off limits, some zones are preferred zones for developing solar energy? Is that –
0: so this idea that you want to sit down and have a, a robust discussion about sort of where the right places are um, is exactly the right way to go. And uh, I commend David and my colleagues in the environmental community who have been participating in the process. I think it's a well-thought-out process. I think the right people are at the table. Um, so the next thing to do is really focus on the mitigation. And, and David's quite right to say, you know, it's very difficult to do things project by project basis on the energy side. Well, the same thing is true when you're really trying to think about the entire ecosystem and getting the uplift. And I know we're talking about solar, but when you think about the scale of energy development that's going to happen in this country, it's really amazing. So two numbers for you. Over the last 100 years, about 60 million acres of land has gone from generally rural use to generally urban use. Some people are forecasting that to meet our energy needs with homegrown energy, It's going to take another 60 million acres, and that's going to be developed in 20 years. So you can get a sense of the scale of the development, and this kind of scale is going to have big landscape impacts. So just like we're finding the right places to put these things, we need to have the same kind of process to find the large zones for where mitigation is going to be the highest value. Identify those and then drive mitigation dollars to those areas for restoration and conservation and that's how you get the overall uplift.
1: John Laird, you ever see the state parks? Is this going to hit on the state parks or anything else you want to say then?
5: Well, there are some transmission issues with state parks. There's some view issues with state parks, their intersection. But what is happening is uh, you're hearing in the comments sort of competing goals butting up against each other. Because when there was the stimulus funds and there were the deadlines, and there was let's get these projects permitted as quick as we can uh, to get that money out the door because of the economic downturn and the uh, mm-hmm. turning of the energy policy, that was good. And when you look at David's concern, which is the right concern, that you plan as a region. So you look at uh, a million or millions of acres and say here are the places that will least be impacted, here are the places when you know on a large scale uh, they can be mitigated, and that's the way we should go. And we're having this tension of trying to get it jump-started and do projects until we can get that in place. So the real ethic has been how do you be as true to that as you can be before it's finished uh, to get the projects moving because, as David Hayes said, uh, and I knew in the legislature when we were talking about the million solar roofs, part of the impetus was not just getting off of fossil fuel and distributing the generation. Part of it was throwing so much money into industry that the efficiencies would come and the price would go down. And we seem to be getting uh, there through what happened with the... Uh, uh, era funds, the uh, stimulus funds. So we're trying to move this given these conflicting pressures.
1: John Laird is Secretary of the California Resources Agency. Our other guests today at Climate One De- Or De- David Hayes, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Interior, Mike Hatfield, Director of Development at First Solar, and David Festa, Vice President and Environmental Defense Fund. So let's keep on this. There's a tension between doing something fast, creating jobs. The Obama administration is has, is up for re-election. Environmentalists are saying, "Well, let's be sure we get it right." How do we work through this tension, David?
2: Um, I think we do things differently, uh, and that's what we've been that's what we've been doing. Working with the state of California very effectively. The the normal process for citing a project on on the public lands is to basically seriatim. Uh, have uh, each of the interested parties weigh in on the project, and it will take years, perhaps, before the National Park Service weighs in at the end and says we're worried about the viewscape effect of this project, or the Fish and Wildlife Service weighs in and <clears throat> says we're worried about the impact on the desert tortoise. And that's after five years of analysis and study. And boom, you realize you are in the wrong spot.
1: They just spoil the party
2: five years after all that. Right, work. and and uh, and the and the party should be spoiled. Uh, we want to spoil the party first right in the beginning and, and that and uh and we're good at it. Spoil <laughs> it early and often. <laughs> early and, and, often. And, and and frankly yeah. investors appreciate that. And and that's the the what we've been doing, the only way we've gotten from zero to ten thousand megawatts is to bring everybody in the process up front and 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 do that analysis early and then see it all the way through. When, when, uh, Secretary Salazar and I were visiting with John and Governor Brown maybe two weeks ago, we, we visited, uh, what, what is the Renewable Energy Action Team. It's, it's all of the permit folks from both state and federal side. There were a room of 50 of them. They're meeting on a weekly basis, going through the projects, getting the information up front. So we, we, you know, obviously our administration cares tremendously about the environment. As well as renewable energy, and we're not going to compromise the environment to get renewable energy. This is how you do it, and we've been taking advantage of of the Recovery Act funds, etc. But we also want to create an architecture for the future, which is the solar energy zone approach. That, and we have brought just the, our, our our comment period just closed, and we had industry lining up. Uh, the, the solar industry in particular, with the leading conservation organizations like Defenders of Wildlife and EDF and NRDC all agreeing with us on the approach that we're now going to finalize and go forward on. It's a very exciting way to to deal with what are truly can be uh, competing values and sometimes irreconcilable values, but we're, we're finding a way.
5: John, later. let me tell a quick story that uh, – Emphasizes those competing values. I've been secretary for a couple of weeks. I keynote my first environmental convention. A line of people line up to talk to me afterwards and this guy walks up to me and says, I work on the siting of uh, renewable energy. Uh, I work on the environmental side. And I, and I said, well, which side is that? <laughs> and he said, and he finally said, well, I work to protect the animals. And I said, you don't think I'm moving to 33% renewables and off of fossil fuel is the environmental side and he said well then I work on the habitat side. Uh but the interesting thing is is the years I was a mayor uh your biggest nightmare was never your traditional adversaries it was when your friends were uh at issue with each other. And so that's why exactly as it has been said we have to work it out. We have to do something that improves the habitat while at the same time uh, producing the renewable energy.
1: David Festa, do you have a, a case study where, where something has become – the environment has been enhanced by development, not just reduced the rate of degradation?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's two there's, – there's actually lots of examples. Um, under the Clean Water Act, there is a mitigation requirement if you're going to – uh, uh, damage a wetland. And there's lots of cases where in the, in the service area, well the region, the eco region where this happens, you're actually seeing net increases. I can give you another, another example, uh, that EDF, uh, worked on and that's uh, Fort Hood in Texas. Uh, Fort Hood is a big army training base. They wanted to increase their training activities. The problem was there's a, a, an endangered bird that lives on the base, and their activities were know, obviously impact that bird. You heard David uh, talk about how long the process can be to go through one of these permitting things, and that obviously presents some logistical issues if you're trying to do training. So um, EDF got together with uh, ranchers who own properties around the base and set up a system of essentially bird ranching. So they're able to keep their ranches, they're able to ranch cows, but also change their practices to mm-hmm. make them more bird-friendly. And that generated, that we had fish and wildlife scientists come in and uh, and rate their, their, their uh, success as bird ranchers, and they earned bird credits. And then the Fish and Wildlife Service went into the Army base, and when the Army uh, impacted Habitat, issued a bird debit, said, you have... Created a, a you're, you're in deficit, and so the Army goes to the Bird Bank, buys the appropriate number of credits, and off we go. Army likes it because it's quick and fast after it's been set up. Let me just say that it did take two, three years um, to get this uh, program set up, so there is an irreducible amount of really hard work that has to happen up front. and But that's different from delays. So what happens is once this is in place, The the system works very smoothly, and the key question is what's happening to the bird population. Well, it's increasing. So there's a perfect example of where an activity takes place, and because that's taken place in the right framework, with the with the species range taken into account, and you've brought in all the stakeholders, and you think of these creative ways, you get you get the outcome you want. You get a better environment, and you get the the economic activities that
4: you want. You know, David Hayes, do you want to jump in? Yeah. I was going to say David mentioned investors, and I think um, – first, I want to just compliment the Department of Interior on a, a fantastic job in trying to bring you know, together a, a broad spectrum of, uh, of opinions. But, you know, from an investor's perspective, anything that helps to reduce risk and uncertainty is a good thing. Yeah, and so I think this PEIS um, process that
1: is environmental been, process that the thank Department you that, of yeah, doing. the
4: the yeah. environmental process is very helpful and um, helps to bring together different stakeholders very early in the process so you don't have a situation five to seven years into a project development where you someone swells the party as you say.
2: You know, <clears throat> Greg, this really, this really ties into the, your, the broader context of Climate One, which is to think about climate change. The reality is that our, our environmental laws are fairly blunt instruments, and you can proceed um, and end up uh, on a project-by-project basis and end up slicing and dicing the landscape so that you lose wildlife corridors, you lose uh, species, uh, habitat strongholds for important species, and you're not violating any environmental laws. Uh, you're, you're saving the, the few tortoises on your, your, your 20 acres, but they're cut off from everything else. What we're talking about is, is broadening the lens, uh, to do landscape level planning, putting solar here, uh, keeping the tortoise, uh, strongholds over here, keeping the wildlife connectivity, and as we move into a climate change affected world where where wildlife ranges are changing, uh, where we can't count on, on the status quo into the future, all the more important to have a resilient landscape. And, and, that's, and, and this concept of habitat conservation planning goes back to Bruce Babbitt in the 1990s as, as, he, as he tried to say we can, we can operate the Endangered Species Act in a way that will benefit the species and get them better by looking at the broad scale of uh, recovery needs for species.
5: And just one significant addition, and that is, is that traditionally, if you do one of those broader planning processes, or the broadest one since it's being done now, it could take as long as 14 years, and I think that there's a real goal Uh, to do this in four, four four-and-a-half, five, and to really compact it so that you can have those broader discussions in a time that it benefits everybody and you can really do something, whether it's the habitat protection before populations crash or the investment for the renewable.
1: This goes up against a lot of tradition and boundaries. Government agencies are – organized by counties and jurisdiction, environmental organizations oftentimes organized around a particular species, salmon or, or bird or big-game wildlife, and they each have their own particular responsibility. And what you're talking about is kind of blurring those lines. That's challenging to a lot of people and institutions. Well, John, well
5: in the resources agency, I have 25 departments, boards, commissions, conservancies, and I might have the Department of Water Resources that has disturbed lands. Fish and Game, which is to protect the habitat, the Energy Commission, which is supposed to cite the renewable. You've got somebody that's the independent system operator that isn't even in the agency dealing with transmission, and state parks that is always concerned about the impacts there. And so it's the reason the governor has taken a lead so that you try to cut through all those differences to meet your common needs and move ahead. But that is – a big challenge. And I'm just determined we're not going to have one department suing another. We're going to have everybody (laughs) at the table with what their interests are in a way that we try to meet them. David Hayes, you have the same
1: thing. In the Department of Interior, there are parts that are responsible for extraction of fossil fuels. And yet you have people who are devoting their life to protecting fish and wildlife. How do you balance that?
2: Uh, fist fights, uh, sometimes. Stay <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> away. The, the, ga- the, the game
1: wardens have guns, so. You know. I, I
2: actually think, uh, there are some advantages to having all that under the same roof, uh, because it, it, it forces this kind of collaboration. Uh, but there, but if you, if you let folks stay in their foxholes and then game it at the end, it's not pretty, as we talked about before. Uh, Uh, What we have been doing is trying to, you know, move that up front. I'll give two quick other examples, and it's hard. The president talked about this when he talked about, in the State of the Union, the importance of regulation um, and mentioned, uh, for example, the Mercury rule. Uh, Regulation has its place, but he wants to also regulate in a way that that makes a lot of sense and that, that facilitates business where it makes sense. Uh, two quick examples. One is, in addition to the solar side, we're doing a similar approach for offshore wind off the Atlantic, where we, mm-hmm. we have brought the whole federal family together, including the Department of Defense, NOAA, et cetera, getting all the data and helping to pick out the areas offshore that look like the best places for wind development, offshore wind development. And then going with those areas and not with a, you know, sort of an overall whatever kind of plan, and 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 having industry come come and and look to lease those. And then in Alaska where you have a similar problem that the president did sign an executive order last July that created an interagency working group uh led by the deputy secretary of interior whoever that is uh to coordinate across uh, all of the agencies all renewable and conventional energy permitting in Alaska. And that's enabled us to to you know to do the hard work up front and not have it uh, turn into a, a, an unhappy picture at the end.
1: Well, are clean energy sources, non-fossil fuel sources, getting kind of favored status in that process, or is it?
2: No, no. It's, it, in Alaska, we're spending most of our time figuring out what to do in the Chukchi and Beaufort. I don't know if you've heard, but there's interesting. A lot of thing.
1: gas up there, yeah. Drilling
2: up Shell there. Shell as a big right. lease, yeah. Right. So now we're spending as much time on conventional as we are on renewable.
1: David Hayes is deputy secretary of the U.S. Interior. Other guests today: Climate One are John Laird, California Resources Agency secretary Mike Hatfield from First Solar, and David Festa from Environmental Defense. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about transmission. It's nice to have generation offshore, but then or in these places that are disturbed lands. But then they got to get to the grid, and they got to get to market, and that's sometimes pretty messy. We'd like to talk about, well that's
3: one of the, opinion.
4: one of the biggest challenges I think that faces these, um, these overall environmental studies because at the end of the day, industry needs to get its product to market and has to do cost effectively and, um, transmission as, as David knows is a very complex topic because you see it, just because you see a transmission tower doesn't mean that there's capacity on it, doesn't mean that you can get contractual rights. Uh, and it doesn't mean that you get it to the location where you want to get it to. Um, and in fact, we have in on our staff uh, two individuals that have over 60 years combined experience with with utilities. So it's it's complex. So the big challenge with these um, overall uh, planning documents is to get the big picture, while at the same time to ensure that the sites are being that are being studied have transmission solutions.
1: John Laird, you touch a little bit about, you know, some of them touch on state parks. They go across someone's favorite ecosystem, someone's view, someone's whatever. There's always a lot of uh, opposition to transmission, but we, we need more of it.
5: Uh, there is, and when you're talking about distributed generation, mm-hmm. you're not talking about these main lines moving through. You're having it in lots of different areas, and so it is a big challenge. and <coughs> It is a reason to have – a planning process that sort of takes that into account in a regional basis so that you can uh, do it the best because so, just one city is worried about one transmission line and if you're doing it regionally. And I think uh, uh, what Mike said, too, there's this issue of the framework. Uh, when I was in the legislature, I was stunned to find out that there was no legal framework for any municipality in California except for two or three carve-outs to do renewable energy in one part of the municipality and then power a facility in another part. If you wanted to have a uh, solar on top of a parking structure and power a municipal swimming pool, there was no legal framework to do it. I had to do a bill that was torture with 6 months negotiations, to establish a legal framework for any city or county in California to do that. And, of course, the minute the governor signed it, the economy crashed. So it's not been used to the extent it could. But those are many things that people just don't think of. It's meet our goals, lessen emissions, move to alternatives, and yet there's the whole framework and distribution and legal system that has to move with it.
1: Well, we're facing serious climate change impacts. They're coming soon. They're coming fast. Would you say that in addressing climate that we might need to make some trade-offs, that maybe some transmission lines have to go through some state parks, some beautiful areas where some environmentalists get really upset, but it's a lesser of evils that some of these hard choices, trade-offs need to be made? You
5: have to talk about the trade-offs because if you look at – in California, we're talking about adding – I think it's 500,000 acres – for just more decarbonizing of the utility industry. And in California, there's 1.2 million acres used for off-road vehicles. So let's look at what the comparisons are and start to look at those. And it's it's just, when it gets back to my story, it's, uh, you, you know, I chair the Ocean Protection Council. We had scientists do what sea level rise would be in 2050 and 2100, and they had to do a median because if we're successful with emissions, it will rise a little less. If we're not successful with emissions, it will rise a little more, and it's 14 inches in 2050, 55 inches in 2100. So you have to start thinking about those tradeoffs because I am sure there's somebody in this audience or the radio audience uh, that lives somewhere uh, between sea level and 55 inches, that's scratching their head right now, <clears throat> and checking their actuarial table on their life expectancy. <laughs> and when you get people to start to think that way, you understand this is serious. There's some trade-offs we have to make. How do we motivate people to do what we have to do?
1: David Festa, transmission lines through some beautiful area state parks. Willing to make some trade-offs?
5: Well, I actually, like, <laughs> I'd
0: expect to push back a little bit on. Uh, Secretary Laird, on on the issue of sort of uh, trade-offs, and I really think it all has to do with timelines. So if you're focused on a project-by-project basis, you're going to inevitably be in this tough tug-of-war between competing priorities on a project-by-project basis. But if we get past that project-by-project and start to say, look, Here's the areas where we know there's awesome opportunities for mitigation, to, to restore species, to restore habitat. And that can more than offset any development that, that we have because we also have this other part of the other side of the coin where we have avoided, uh, the worst impacts and minimized the impacts on site. Then things, then, then the overall the result is net improvement and and so that makes a discussion just a really really different discussion and that's where i think we have to keep our we have to keep our eye on that horizon
5: i think what what david's saying is 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 some things that are perceived as trade-offs are really winning situations for everyone i think he's right and uh, the one thing is is that we do have the timeline issue of trying to move over the short-term and then the long-term. And the thing that has surprised me since I've been secretary is that there is this general move. Try to move to mitigate regionally. Try to look at not an individual dam or an individual uh, uh, wetlands, but the entire watershed. Try to look not at one species by itself, but what's the entire wildlife corridor that allows this species to move and live and reproduce. And the thing about it is, is that is a transition as well. That is not the way we've been thinking. It's uh, not what, the way the
1: laws are written. <clears throat> the Endangered Species Act, a lot of other things, right?
5: Exactly. And it. it <clears throat> but when you have, uh, we were talking beforehand off stage about needing in certain places some pilots on certain issues to prove that concepts work to convince people that they need to think in this broader level. And so David's right. The challenge is is how do you hold things or how do you get to those broader views while trying to do things right now, and that's the challenge.
1: John Laird is secretary (coughs) of the California Resources Agency. Uh, We're going to put a microphone up here and invite your participation uh, and invite you, if you're on this side of the audience, please go out that door and around rather than walking in front of this camera here. And where my colleague Jane Ann is back there, that's where the line will start. We welcome you to come up and uh, and participate. This is a very important part of of the program, both this and also you all meeting and interacting with each other uh, afterwards. While that's going on, I'm going to ask uh, a question about we've been talking about the the federal situation. Governor Brown also has a renewable electricity standard that's driving a lot of solar development in California. So, John Laird, what's the status of that, and is that really going to be, you know, does he have similar ambitions, and is that going to cause some of these trade-offs we're talking about to meet that 33 percent goal?
5: Well, the thing about it is, is that, as I was saying earlier, if we build everything that's permitted, we're almost there. But the question is: Is there still some planning? There's still some financing, and they're still making sure that we meet these larger goals. And that is
1: the the environmental goals. Yes, we'll and that's the tough way.
5: challenge because I think David's right. We will get to the point that it's not a trade-off. But how do we do what we have to do before we're fully at that point? Because we've approved a regional plan or regional mitigations in a good way.
1: David Festa, do you have confidence that will happen?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think we just have to get out there and start start trying stuff.
1: Let's have an audience question. Our first audience question. Welcome.
4: I have a question about California military land. Uh, there's a lot of it. And could that land be used? I mean, climate change is really a national security issue as well as an international security issue. So
1: we we talked a about a base in Texas where some things yeah. have happened. How about uh, California bases?
2: Uh, there are tremendous opportunities, actually, uh, to work with the Department of Defense uh, on uh, on renewable energy. In fact, uh, the Department of Defense came out with a report within the last several weeks uh, suggesting that uh, they could relatively easily potentially generate 7,000 megawatts of renewable energy without affecting their mission. Um, there are obviously in this state uh, – uh, Fort Irwin and many other large bases uh, that uh, that have have possibilities. We have a relationship with the Department of Defense. Many of the <coughs> Department of Defense lands are actually withdrawn interior lands, so so we are working with them. And um,
1: and some of the bases are. Going from the other direction, from DOD to, in, to uh, well, that's right.
2: BLM. You know, John Laird and I were just down in, in his uh, old neck of the woods down there at Fort Ord, uh, down on the Monterey Peninsula, which, which is moving 7,000 acres of which has already moved to the Department of the Interior. Another 7,000 is on its way. I'd like to announce, however, that we are not going to have solar power uh, at Fort Ord. Thank There's you, because I ride my mountain
1: bike with are, my son, and I don't want to see an any a,
2: solar. On it is an amazing. <laughs> when an we amazing harness fog beautiful. power, we'll have a <laughs> right, lot of power. Right. Fog some, power. <laughs> some places are intended to be kept uh, uh, in their natural state, and Fort Ord is <clears throat> is remarkable in that respect—a uh, uh, real wonderland. One John very John
5: quick addition. Another surprise to me as secretary was to find that the U.S. military had a priority on alternatives. And so the former chair of the California Energy (laughs) Commission, uh, Jackie Fannenstiel, is Deputy Secretary of the Navy for Energy just working on the Navy lands on different issues, and they are truly taking the lead in a number of ways.
1: She was here a few weeks ago. In fact, there's a podcast of that conversation in iTunes if you'd like to listen mm-hmm. to that. Let's have our next audience question. Thanks.
5: Uh, Gavin Purchase from the Climate Works
4: Foundation, uh, a comment and a question. The comment is to say thank you very much. Uh, the, the solar zones, I think, is going to make a really big difference to solar in this country. Uh, the question is, have you got plans for doing something similar around wind, specifically offshore wind?
2: Yes, Gavin, um, uh,
1: but not off Santa Cruz. Uh, <laughs>
2: uh,
5: we got a lot of wind there right now. <coughs> the the
2: the offshore Atlantic is as an amazing resource, mm. and and that is an area where uh, we have taken the same approach. of uh, We we work we are working with the nine governors uh, up and down the coast. We are we are uh, getting data up front, identifying the areas that look like they make the most sense. Uh, and providing early opportunities for well-financed companies to bid in an auction format uh, for uh, the right to build out there, and uh, we we are within a very short period of time. There will be an announcement uh, of the wind energy areas off of New Jersey, Maryland, uh, Virginia, and Delaware uh, that we will be ready to go now to the leasing stage. Um, it's the right way to do things uh wind on the on uh, in terms of uh, onshore wind on the public lands much of the wind development has been on private lands uh where where most of our role is as as a fish and wildlife service uh, working on the bird and bat issue um, i think that there's been talk of of trying to look long term at at uh, at wind uh in terms of public lands and we're very interested in that avoiding migratory bird corridors and that sort of thing um, uh, so I, I think that's probably next.
6: David
1: Hayes is Deputy Secretary of U.S. Department of Interior. Let's have our next audience question.
6: Arthur Halvenstock with Bright Source Energy. We're very excited about the concept of regional mitigation plans Developers are not the best at determining where to go with mitigation. Piecemeal mitigation doesn't begin to meet the needs of the species, especially as climate change continues to advance. California has a statute that enables pooling of resources, and California and the federal government are working together, along with counties in the Desert Renewable Energy Conservation Plan, which is starting to try to work with that. I'm wondering what your thoughts are about how this is all working and how we can operationalize this for the projects that are going forward today.
5: John Laird. Well, I, we're working really hard to do the regional mitigations as part of the planning process to give a guidepost. And the tough thing is, as we were saying, if you're trying to move in advance of the completion of the planning process, how best to take what we can from that planning process and see if even though it's not done, we can apply it to the individual projects and try to make it happen. And the uh, just in general, uh, because we're trying a, a regional mitigation plan in Northern California that's not necessarily related just to energy, because traditionally, if it's a Caltrans project, if it's i uh, – I'm trying to think of all the different public works and in addition to energy, people sort of do these on-site mitigations and you don't have, as we were saying earlier, uh, all these regional things done. And can you have a planning project? that really says regionally we want to preserve these wildlife corridors, these wetlands within an integrated uh, watershed, other issues, and then uh, allow people to mitigate against those regional needs. And that's in place in an experimental basis in five counties in the north, Calusa, Butte, that general region. And I think, we're going to find that the concept works and we shouldn't wait till the end of it to start doing it in other places. Greg, if I can just sure, jump David, in on
2: that. One of the um, approaches we've taken in the Obama administration to this question of regional conservation is is each of the last 3 years we have procured from Congress 100 million dollars a year to develop a network of landscape conservation cooperatives. This is a and climate science centers the the landscape conservation cooperatives are a very unique mechanism to deal exactly with this kind of regional planning the idea is the feds call a meeting basically we do not uh, of folks regional resource managers put around the table what are the priorities for this region in terms of conservation we bring dollars to the table to help do science, to help answer questions about impacts on species, uh, restoration needs, et cetera. We provide the opportunity for coordinated decision-making. These are the bodies where decisions should be made about where solar projects go in that region, uh, where mitigation should go. We're creating that architecture. It's very exciting, uh, and it's maturing. Uh, and uh, so far, we've had the support of Congress. The idea is bring science to the table, provide the opportunity for shared decision-making, and you're going to get the best best result in terms of conservation for a region.
1: Wait, science and Congress results? Okay, right. <laughs> right. Um, we're discussing clean energy at Climate One. Let's have our next audience question.
6: Yes, I have a comment and a question. My comment is it was really nice to hear that there is a consideration for the conservation corridors But I do have a question, I was wondering if any one of you could speak to uh, the life expectancy of these solar farms and where they are probably going to be sited in the desert. Would there be associated uh, operation and maintenance problems in that regard?
4: Well, I think I could could speak to the life of these projects. They're typically um, 20 to 25 years. And that relates to the, um, the term of the long-term contract with, with our customers, um, the large California utilities. Technology is going to change, and, and so those projects, um, you know, as, as technology gets better and costs are driven down, uh, those terms could, uh, could change. And there was a second part to the question.
1: Maintenance afterwards. Oh, I think, right. you know, so I can impacts. That it's not just the construction. There's ongoing impacts of. Yeah, so storage.
4: that's that's. Thank you for the reminder. So yeah, for um, the operation, at least at the first solar facilities, um, very low impact. We have a 50 megawatt project that's starting up in Nevada. It will probably have um, three people. Uh, you have one much much larger in California. You might have a dozen people. Um, very low water consumption. In, in fact, for the generation of electricity, there's is, there is no water consumption. Water is mainly used for dust control and so forth. So once the project is built, the impact is pretty, uh, pretty low. But we have so we have
2: lease conditions that require, uh, at the end, uh, whenever this project is over, that the land be restored. Uh, and, and bonding is required. Financial obligations are required as, as lease terms. That said... There's no question that a solar project is, is a single use of that property that, that is, inhibits, uh, its, its, its availability to wildlife, et cetera. And that's where the mitigation comes in. So we're, we're not, we're not pretending here that these projects don't have impacts. They do. And the, the key thing is to put them in places where the impacts are minimal and then to mitigate them and to make sure at the end of their life, that land returns to the public uh, fisc in good, good shape.
4: And I can add to David's comments that the, the um, reclamation bonds that the Department of Interior requires are very hefty. So <laughs> good. They've got protection. <laughs> good.
1: Give us yeah. back our land in good shape. Okay. Uh, next question, please.
0: Uh, my name is Cassie Barr, and I uh, belong to Desert Survivors, and also uh, I'm the chair of the Wilderness Subcommittee meeting at the Sierra Club. Um, People in desert survivors have a concern about
6: this being kind of a giveaway to big business and conservation and rooftop solar not giving the, the attention that it should have to protect the environment.
1: John Laird, Governor Brown is very big on distributed solar, which means rooftop solar. That if what if we did more rooftop, we wouldn't need so many big plants in the desert or eco- ecologically sensitive areas.
5: Well, we might not need it if we were trying to get solely to the 35 percent and solely with solar. But I think that, uh, frankly, this is the first stage of a longer-term thing, and it is going to – there are economics of the uh, individual rooftops, and, and in some ways the larger projects seem to pencil out better economically. But I think over time they can't be mutually exclusive.
4: And I agree with what John said. At this stage of solar, both are needed, um, but the large scale is going to allow us to drive down cost more quickly, but, but but both are certainly needed. We've had Mike Peavy here
1: from the <clears> Public <throat> Utilities Commission who says we need it all. We need all solar. Other people say that. Um, let's just How many people have rooftop solar in the audience? Five percent, something like that? Okay, let's have our next audience question, please.
7: My name is Olivier Jaffagnon with the Green Frog from Silicon Valley. Before I ask my question, I'd like to commend the uh, Department of Interior for Solar and the environmentalists for the work they've done with Desert Sunlight. I visited the site, and it's very phenomenal and much better than the wheat farm near Palm Springs. Uh, My question relates to the integration of energy needs in the planning. Uh, There are uh, islands like Hawaii uh, in Maui where the level of solar and, and wind reaches 30% of the energy production in peak power, but the result, uh, the net result, is only 5%. And so my questions are these giant parks, like Desert Sunlight of 500 megawatts is that the right size and the right architecture being connected to the grid to have a real impact on the energy needs? And if not, are there other approaches, either solar roofs or integration in uh, the businesses construction.
1: Can you just clarify? Thirty percent of Hawaii, of Maui's yeah. energy is solar and wind at peak, but it's only five percent
7: in um, in average. Average. Okay. Well, I can take a
4: first. Um, so I I, you know, I think uh, it, it is region specific. In California, we have know, sixty thousand megawatts of installed capacity under the ISO. It's arguably one of the largest electricity markets in the, in the world, and so it's going to take a lot of large scale solar just to meet California's needs. Um, but,
2: David Hayes? <laughs> just to um, the, the questioner is, is getting to a, a challenge with some renewable energy, which is that it's not as reliable, it's not baseload, um, and so you've got It may happen
1: certain times of the day. Right.
2: And but it's very interesting how quickly um, technology is developing. And a number of the new solar facilities, uh Secretary Salazar visited one just last week, um, are are putting storage in so that, that you can you, you, you heat up an element that that then can generate the electricity during the nighttime and, and give you twenty four hours of power. There's a tremendous amount of battery research, big battery associated with, and and uh, sort of uh, conjunctive power uses. Um, so I, there's a tremendous premium being put on uh, having, particularly large scale solar, uh, be firmed up, uh, and in both either. Uh, on, on its own or in conjunction with other energy sources. Natural gas provides uh, a real opportunity there as well. I, I think what we're seeing is we don't know where this is going to end, but what we are seeing is that that, that solar in particular uh, can become a very big part of, of our ultimate power needs.
5: And John, there, uh, yeah, we at the state have had uh, for the last 15 years a small – utility surcharge, that's the public goods charge, and it's gone for energy efficiency, but it's also gone for public interest research. And it's with the hope that on issues like this, such as storage and other things, you can seed research that then allows uh, the technology on the broader scale to be more efficient and to work. And... Uh, since it requires a two-thirds vote, which is problematic in the state legislature, uh, these days, uh, it was not extended last fall and the Public Utilities Commission has taken action to extend it on their own and we're working really hard to continue, uh, the, the California Secretary of EPA and I visited, uh, the Lawrence Berkeley lab where they're actually doing a lot of these things on storage and other things to try to see if they can't uh, sort of work with the market to uh, assist in some of these issues.
1: John Latter Secretary of the California Resources Agency. Our other guests today at Climate Wonder David Hayes from the U.S. Department of Interior, Mike Hatfield from First Solar, and David Festa from Environmental Defense Fund. I'm Greg Dalton. Let's have our next audience question.
3: Hi. My name is uh, Greg Davis, and I'm just speaking for myself. Uh, I actually have a, a – a question to follow up on the the previous one, having to do with the uh, long term reliable provision of electricity, given the the wide variations on uh, on solar, for example. And um, so I'm I'm glad that was introduced, but but I wasn't really happy with your answer, and I'm hoping I could uh, encourage you to speak a little bit more about. Uh, Uh, particularly the comment, well, we don't really know how this is going to work out. We don't really have the energy storage capacity right now to supply gigawatts and whatnot of of, uh, of, uh, solar electrical uh, energy. And also I I got the impression that some of the uh, thermoelectric, which involve the molten salts and whatnot, are uh, being abandoned now because of the price of uh, photovoltaics have come down so much that they're switching over to those, which – makes the energy storage problem just that much more important. If you could speak with that, I'd appreciate it.
2: Well, this is where I wish I could channel uh, uh, Nobel Prize winner, Stephen Chu, the yes. Secretary of Energy. Mm. I, can, uh, mm. I have sat in many a meeting with Secretary Chu, where he has, um, former head of the Livermore Lab, of course, uh, where he's been focused on this particular issue. Um, and it's beyond my expertise. Uh, all I can say is that, the best minds in the country are, are working to figure this out and, and that, the, the, that we do have time to figure this out. We still we have baseload power uh, that, that uh, with natural gas now providing more baseload and peaking power, uh, we have the, the, the time and space, I think, to figure out how to balance wind uh, and firm up wind and solar. Uh, and a number of projects that are before the Department of the Interior for permitting are designed to help do that. There's pump storage, for example, where you, uh, you know, while you're making the power, uh, you, you pump water uh, up and then you bring it down and produce through the turbines the, the, uh, the power when, when the, um, uh, the sun is not shining or the wind is not blowing. Uh, there, there is a, a lot of talk about using natural gas peaking, uh, capability in conjunction with renewable energy. Um, so I can understand your frustration with our answer, and in part it's because we are in a learning phase. Um, but our power needs are such that we have the the space, I think, to to learn and to and to bring up the this significant power to market in the meantime. And and uh, for future, uh, I suggest uh, tuning in to, to uh, Stephen Chu. Uh, and, uh, well, we ought to find a podcast, uh, that we can send out to your, your listeners, because, because, uh, he's, he's very interested in this. A lot of research going on at the Department of Energy is focused on the
4: issue. Re- I you gentle gentlemen, well. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, we are honoring Stephen Chu at the Commonwealth Club on April 18th, uh, here in San Francisco, so you can come hear him in person then. Uh, David Festa, we touched on water a little bit, we've been, but that's a really big issue here. We've been talking mainly implicitly about photovoltaic solar, but there's another t- other kinds of solar that uses lots of water. So I'd like to have you briefly address the water impacts of solar, because we haven't really given that du- full justice uh, sure. so far. So
0: go back, go back to the hierarchy we've been talking about. Um, first, avoid impacts where you can. So um, if you're going to be citing high water use uh, facilities, make sure it's in a place that can sustain that. <clears throat> Minimize the use uh, when you have permitted those. So make sure the incentives are right, so that the, there's innovation on site, and you're using as little water as possible. So leads me back to my other problem that there's still water being used. <clears throat> so that's where you get that's where you get into mitigation, and you begin to look at incentives that you can provide, uh, or the mitigation packages that the developers will uh, finance that pays for farmers and ranchers and foresters. To begin to change how they use their lands so that they are uh, engaging in higher conservation which frees up water uh, for ecosystems which again helps the whole ecosystem function better and if you do this right if you put the if you put a high water use in a place that can sustain it required an offsetting uh, mitigation you' and you put that in the right place where you know you need habitat values you're actually creating that net uplift in the environment because you're restoring, perhaps, a degraded land that was uh, a ranch or a single-purpose forest to something that is much more dynamic that not only has water benefits but can have climate benefits by sequestering carbon or changing practices to reduce reduce emissions, great wildlife benefits, um, wetland benefits. So that's the kind of – that's the power of this really integrated approach. So that's how I would uh, deal with the water benefit.
5: And and we've been so – focused on the subject, that when you look at the broader reach of energy or water, while we're talking about trying to change sort of the fixed pie that exists now of energy use and move percentages from non-renewable to renewable, you always have to have conservation and efficiency as part of your overall program so that you're affecting demand in general. And I mean, We've saved $60 billion in California since Governor Brown was governor the first time and did energy efficiency standards on water. You look at uh, the Los Angeles Basin, which amazingly in the last 25 years has grown by 3 million people on exactly the same amount of water. And so the question is, is not just how do we shift within energy usage to more renewable but how do we constantly see what we can do to be more efficient and lower demand? We're going to
1: have one last uh, audience question, and then we're going to ask – I'll ask you just for a final uh, closing quick remark you'd like to make. Uh, yes, sir.
6: Arthur Halbenstock with BrightSource Energy. And, again, uh, sorry to be a repeat caller, but I couldn't resist the temptation to provide an answer for Secretary Chu. We at Brightsource have three contracts before the California Public Utilities Commission now that have thermal thermal storage, um, molten salt of the, the type that the previous questioner was asking about. And there are several other companies that are doing that as well. It's very important, especially as you get more distributed generation online, when that falls off at the end of the evening to be able to pick up the power and ensure stability without requiring peakers to move up and down and causing emissions problems. But it does raise another question. And this has to do with auctioning off land uh, for BLM or elsewhere. When you need that kind of innovation, when you know that the type of generation that you're looking forward to have supply the energy uh, system is going to be changing, does it make the most sense for purposes of rewarding the U.S. and its land to have that go to the highest bidder, which is going to put the prize on what is currently costed out for energy? Or does it make sense to look at what's going to provide the most reliability, reduce emissions the most, produce the other kinds of policy benefits that we're looking for, because those benefits aren't really being priced for right now in the energy system.
1: David, I think I hear some pushback on auctions.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: We have a solar company that doesn't want to uh, be in a bidding war, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, <laughs> competition is the American way here. And uh, I think the reality is, and we've seen it in, in, uh, in other arenas like oil and gas, uh, what you want are are folks who are committed to develop the the, the land uh, in a way that will 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 keep and frankly um, particularly in renewable energy there are issues about financial viability um, having providing an equal opportunity and not just who happens to have filed first makes the most sense and I think most economists will say uh, that 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 bonus or whatever to get the land will be uh, will be essentially amortized over the, the life of the lease and, uh, I'm sure Brightsource will do just fine, uh, in any bidding war. So, uh, sorry Arthur, we're heading that way. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Mike Atfield, auctions? Yeah, I think, uh, the market, uh, needs to operate and that's, um, that's the, uh, system that's in place for other energy sources and, I would just say that um, developers have opportunities on public lands, and they have opportunities on private lands. And um, our goal is to drive down costs so that ultimately the ratepayer is paying the lowest price.
5: So let let the
4: market operate.
5: John
1: Laird, final word, and then we'll go to David Festa.
5: Just that uh, we've been talking about in many ways about government action and incenting, but when you set goals, whether it's to reduce things into landfills, to conserve water, or to turn to renewables, a significant amount is to incent individual action. And the people that are listening or watching uh, really are part of this, either their own renewable systems, their own actions for energy efficiency, or their own support just out in the public discussion for moving from fossil fuels to this and and being willing to support people that take those risks. And so I would just use this close to call people to action on that because that really is about the future in any of a number of ways. David Festa. Well,
0: as you've, you've heard me say, I think the back to the desert, uh, you know, I think the, I commend the process. I, I think it's the right process. I think it's the right people. I think the hierarchy is right. Avoid, minimize, and mitigate. And on mitigate, we have a really exciting, uh, future ahead of us if we design a mitigation system for the 21st century that Allows us to see this overall uplift in, in environmental quality for everybody.
1: David Festas, West Coast Vice President of the Environmental Defense Fund. Our other guests today here at Climate One have been Mike Hatfield, Director of Development at First Solar, David Hayes, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Interior, and John Laird, Secretary of the California Resources Agency. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you for listening to Climate One today.